Well now, if uh, those children who are going to Sunday school would leave with their teachers. And please can the rest of us turn in our Bibles to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And this is found on page uh, 1,148 in the Church Bibles. Uh, So, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to read from verse 14 down to chapter 7 and verse 1. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement, of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Well, keep your Bible open there. Let's just come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity we've had already to worship you and to hear your word and to pray to you. We pray now that as we consider your word together, you will speak to us. Please, Lord, will you help me to be able to teach your word well? And, Lord, please, would you shine your spotlight upon our hearts? Lord, uh, we pray that if there's any sin that's lurking in our hearts, you would expose this to us and give us repentance. And we pray also that for those of us who belong to you, we'll be encouraged to know the grace you've shown to us. And any that don't yet know Christ, you'll move them to come to him for salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In these verses that we have just read, Paul says to the believers in Corinth that they should not enter into partnership with those who are not believers. 
he speaks about the fundamental differences that there are between the believer and the unbeliever. He also cites several Old Testament scriptures where God calls upon his people to separate themselves from unbelievers and he promises blessings to them if they will do so. He then applies what he said uh, more generally and urges his believers to separate themselves from anything which will contaminate their lives, which will stop them from serving God as they should. The immediate background for this passage uh, is that the believers in Corinth had entertained false teachers among them. They'd welcomed in people who were teaching a different gospel. And these false teachers, these ones that Paul later calls super-apostles, uh, these ones were, were drawing the love and the affection of the believers in Corinth away from the apostle Paul. And they were drawing that love towards themselves. And so uh, in the verse, verses that immediately precede this passage, and also in the verses which immediately follow uh, this passage, the apostle uh, speaks to the believers about the love which he has for them and urges them to return back to him something of the love that he has for them. And uh, so, and this section here, chapter 6, verse 14, through to chapter 7, verse 1, is sort of sandwiched between those two passages where the apostle is urging the believers to, uh, to open their hearts to him. And he's really saying to them that they should not be having this wrong alliance with these false teachers. Now, the situation, of course, in, in Corinth was a very specific situation, and we trust uh, is not replicated, we hope, in this church here. I'm not aware of any false teachers who've been welcomed into the church here. Uh, so it's not, there's not a direct uh, application from, in, in terms of, of, of that. But there are, I'm sure, many ways in which this passage speaks to us in more general terms. Um, there are many ways in which we who are believers might be tempted to enter into a wrong partnership with those who are not believers. Uh, for example, uh, there is a pressure... Uh, for us to join with those who call themselves Christians, who have the name of being Christian, but teach a different gospel, perhaps for the sake of, 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 um, of wanting to maintain a certain degree of respectability. We are tempted to think, okay, well, I'll, I'll say that others who are not really true Bible-believing Christians are Christian. And we're tempted to join with them, maybe in some, some inter-church 
organisation, which would be contrary to God's will. Or uh, some of us may be, perhaps, are tempted to, uh, to turn to people who are not really true Christians for friendship and support. Now, of course, nothing wrong with having non-Christian friends at a certain level. But if you look to uh, certain people who are not believers to be your closest pal, to be your closest support, and, and to be the person with whom you share the most intimate details of your life, there's a great danger that you are going to land up uh, in a wrong partnership. Then, again, some of us may be perhaps are tempted into forming a business relationship, a business partnership with someone who is not a Christian. And then there is also uh, the, the, the fact that many Christians who are not married may be tempted to uh, enter into a relationship with someone who is not a Christian either to live with that person or perhaps to marry that person who's not a Christian, uh, out of a sense of, of, of a feeling of a pressure to, to, uh, to be in some relationship. And so there are many ways in which I think this, this passage can speak to us and can apply to us. And I, and I do hope that you will listen very carefully uh, to what we consider this morning and uh, uh, see what God would say to you through it. Now, um, the passage, it seems to me, divides into three sections. The first section, in the first section, in verses 14 to the f- verse 14 through to the middle of verse 16, the apostle talks about the impossibility of a Christian joining with a non-Christian because in any real meaningful way because of the fundamental differences that there are between a Christian and a non-Christian. And then in verses, second half of verse 16 through to verse 18, the apostle quotes a number of Old Testament scriptures which each one of the ones he, he quotes, it speaks about, first of all, the call for God to separate from those who are unbelievers, but then also the promise that God makes. God, God makes a promise that, various promises that he will bless those who obey him in this area. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, uh, the apostle generalizes what he said and talks about the need not just for separation from, from, uh, from those who are not believers, but to separate generally from sin, to pursue holiness out of uh, the fear of God. Well, um, as I was preparing, it seemed to me that actually it's going to be impossible for me to do justice to all of this passage in one, in one sitting. So what I propose to do uh, this morning is to concentrate mainly on verses 14 to 16. And then I hope next week to come back to 
um, verse, the second half of verse 16 to chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, because those promises in the Old Testament really, there's so much in there, it, it would be, it'd be impossible for me really to, to actually do justice to those, uh, to look at them and look at them in their context and explain them in, in, in the time that we've got. So that's how I propose uh, to handle this. So we're really, I say, focusing today on verses 14 to the, sec- the first half of verse 16. And uh, in these verses, well, let's just read them again. Verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Now the apostle here uses an agricultural metaphor, an agricultural word picture. In the ancient world, and still in some parts of the world today, you might have seen photographs or paintings or drawings. Um, to plough a field, the farmer would, use, would have used animals. And he'd have got two animals side by side. Often it would have been oxen. And he'd have placed like a, a wooden yoke. A yoke is like a bar that goes across shoulders. So he'd place a yoke across those two animals, which are harnessed together. And then there'd be a shaft that was attached to the middle of that yoke. And that shaft would run down between the two animals. And then at the end of the shaft, there would be a plow. And the man would, would the farmer would stand behind the animals, maybe with a with a some reins or, or perhaps like a small whip or something like this as well. And he would, he would sort of flick the whip or something and get the animals moving. And then he'd sort of steer them with, with, with the reins and try to get them to, to go across the field. And uh, back in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament law, God said in Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 10, he said, you shall not plough with an ox and a donkey together. When you're, when you're harnessing two animals to a, to a, to a plough, don't try and put a, 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 an ox next to a donkey. Now, of course, you can see there's a very good reason for that. Because if you try and harness a, an ox to a donkey, well, first of all, they're going to quarrel with each other. But secondly... An ox is far stronger than a, than a donkey is, and much bigger than a donkey. And so what's going to happen is, they're just going to veer off course. You're not going to be able to plough a straight line, because, because the, the two are totally different from each other, and they're not going to be able to work together as a team. So what, what God commanded in the, in the Old Testament law was, was, was good agricultural sense. But of course... With, with so many of these laws in the Old Testament, there's a spiritual side to it. And the spiritual side is actually what Paul is talking about here. That you can't, you should not try to join together a believer with an unbeliever. Because 
They're just going to be pulling in opposite directions. They're, they're, they're going to have a completely different approach to the whole of their life and their work. And uh, now, you, you, so he's saying that, that, that they must not join together. They must not, you must not link together, partner together with an unbeliever. Now, in saying this, is the apostle saying that a Christian should have, have absolutely nothing to do with a non-Christian? That a Christian should not work for a non-Christian, a Christian shouldn't go to a non-Christian shop, or shouldn't, a Christian shouldn't go to a website that's posted by a non-Christian and, and buy goods on the internet, and they should you know, live in a completely separate sort of world, completely separate universe from non-Christians. Well, the answer is, of course, no. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, the apostle urges the believers to have nothing to do with those who call themselves Christians, who call themselves believers, but do not live as believers. But then he, he writes in verses 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians 6, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So he's not saying, no, don't have anything to do with any non-Christian at all. That would be impossible. Now, this is something which we do need to remember because down through the ages, some professing Christians have not understood what the apostle says there and have tried to withdraw from the world and to sort of live in a sort of parallel universe. And they've set up monasteries for themselves where only believers live in these monasteries and they, they've become like self-contained little communities which, which have only got believers in them. But the problem is that, the, that sin doesn't stop at the door of the monastery because sin is in the human heart. And so what happens is that the sin invades the monastery. And sometimes you find that the sin inside the monastery is worse than the sin in the world. So, no, God doesn't call us to separate ourselves in that sense and to live in a completely different uh, universe from, from, uh, from unbelievers. But what the Apostle is saying here is that we not, should not enter into partnership with unbelievers. What sort, of thing, what sort of things could we apply this to? Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, we could apply it to, say, an unbeliever who's a close friend or having an unbeliever who's a business partner or trying to enter into Christian ministry or service with people who are not really true Christians, some sort of um, inter-church organization with, with those who are not really true Christians or also marrying and unbelief. These would perhaps be examples of what the apostle is talking about here. And he then explains why a Christian should not enter into partnership with uh, an unbeliever. And the, essentially what he says is, don't even try it. Because if you're a Christian, the difference between you and the non-Christian with whom you think you're having a partnership is just so enormous 
you're just not going to be able to get on. You're going to be put, pulling in completely opposite directions. Now, uh, some of us will be aware that when the apostle is, is making a point, uh, he will often ask what in English we call a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is a question to which the answer is obvious, but the question is asked in order to make the point. So here in this passage, the apostle actually asks five rhetorical questions. And these five questions bring out the massive difference that there is between the Christian and the non-Christian. And they, they instruct us as to what's happened to you if you're a Christian. And they also show us just how different your non-Christian friend or partner is from you. So let's look at these five questions now. He says, first question, number one, he says um, in, uh, in, in verse, middle of verse 14, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Answer that question. None at all. There is no partnership between righteousness and lawlessness. A believer is righteous in God's sight. He's been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And moreover, he's been, a believer has been born again. His heart has been renewed. He has a righteous heart, a, a, a high heart that desires God. He now loves righteousness and hates wickedness. He's being changed by God. He's on the way to perfection. But the unbeliever stands for lawlessness. The unbeliever is unrighteous in God's sight. He is guilty before God. And his heart has not been renewed. He loves sin and he hates God and he hates God's law. He's totally opposed to what is right. So for a believer who loves righteousness to try to enter into a partnership with an unbeliever who hates, unright, who, who, who hates righteousness, it's, it's a complete non-starter that the two have nothing in common with each other. Next thing he says, next question he asks, what fellowship has light with darkness? Well, the answer is none whatsoever. A believer represents the light of God in this dark world. Jesus said to his disciples, as recorded in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14, he said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we who are believers, we are to be this light shining in the world. And we are that light shining in the world because 
God has brought us into the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's enabled us to see the light of, of the Lord. And his light is shining upon us. In fact, Paul also spoke about that, didn't he? Um, it, it, earlier on in this, in this passage, in, in, this, um, in this book about how, how um, uh, chapter 4 and verse 18, we who with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. And he also talked also about how uh, the God who said, who said, let there be light, caused his light to shine in our hearts. Uh, if you look at verse chapter 4, verse 4, uh, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then he says, verse 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We've got this, we who are believers, we are, we've come into the light. We've seen the light. And we are shining with the light, with the light of Christ in this world. But the unbeliever, well, he's in darkness. He's not only in darkness, but he loves the darkness. He doesn't want the light. He prefers the darkness. Jesus says in John 3 and verse 19, he says, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. So you've got a Christian who's in the light and who loves the light and is shining in the light and you've got an unbeliever who loves darkness. He's in the darkness and, and prefers to stay in that darkness. So what is there in common between the between the believer and the unbeliever? Of course, there's nothing at all. Third question he asks uh, in um, 2 Corinthians. He says in verse 15, What accord has Christ with Belial? Now, Belial is another word for the devil. What agreement is there? What accord, what agreement is there between Christ on the one hand and the devil on the other hand? Well, the answer, of course, there's no agreement at all. And this, again, shows the impossibility of a Christian trying to join into partnership with an unchristian. Because a Christian, a believer in Christ, has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. He belongs to Christ. Not only that, but he's been joined to Christ. He's part of Christ. One with him. But the unbeliever, he belongs to the devil. He's, he's a slave of the devil. He's a child of the devil. Paul Paul. Uh, reminds the believers in, in Ephesians chapter 2 in verses 1 and 2 the apostle Paul reminds the believers of the condition that they were in before God saved them and what he says there is true for everybody who's not saved he says as for you you were dead in, in the transgressions and sins in which you once walked 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who is that prince of the power of the air? Answer, the devil. So he says to these people, these believers, before you were saved, you were following the devil. And that friend of yours who you're thinking of partnering with, he or she is a, is a follower of the devil. You belong to Christ if you're a Christian. You're in Christ. You're, what are you trying to try to join Christ to the devil? How can you do that? It's impossible. Well, then let's go to the fourth question. He says, uh, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? That second half of verse 15. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Now, the idea of a portion is, you know, is the idea of an inheritance. The idea of, 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 of what God has given out. You know, um, Back in the Old Testament times, the, 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 different, the, the portions were allotted to the different families. And they were, the, the land was carved up and each family had his own portion, his own bit of, 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 of Canaan, of the promised land. And uh, you know, the psalmist says, you know, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. There is that portion that has been given to the believer. Well, so... What portion, what blessings does a believer share with an unbeliever? Well, think about the the blessings that you have if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you've been forgiven for all your sins. You have been redeemed from slavery to sin. You've been given the Holy Spirit. You've been born again. You've been brought into the family of God, the church. You now know the love of God in your heart, poured out in your, in your heart. And that's, that's just what's in this life, but then, and many other blessings as well in this life, but then in the life to come, you've got the prospect of a resurrection body, the new heavens and the new earth, freedom from, ever, from all suffering, no longer will sin be a problem for you, You'll be with God's people in perfect harmony and you'll see God himself face to face and you'll love him and worship him forever. But what about the non-Christian? What about this non-Christian friend of yours? What's his portion? What's her portion? Well, does he know the forgiveness of sins? No. Does he know the comfort of the love of God? No. Does he have the Holy Spirit in his life? No. Is he born again? No. Does he have the, the, the is, he, is he being changed by, to become more like Christ? No. He's alienated from God. He's alienated from his people. And in the life to come, what's his portion in the life to come? He'll face, he is facing eternal torment in hell. Your portion and his portion, they're nothing to do with each other. You've got a completely different, a totally different prospect in this life and in the life to come, unless your friend uh, becomes, is born again and, 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 and saved. And then the fifth question, 
He says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Answer, well, none. The Christian, the body of a Christian is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God himself lives inside the true believer. It's just amazing, but it's true. The Holy Spirit has come and lived in, is living inside the true believer. Your body, if you're a believer, is a holy thing, a wonderful thing, because it's the temple of the living God. But the temple of the believer, of the unbeliever, that's not the temple of the, of, 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 of the living God. It's the temple of idols. Idols are worshipped uh, by that person who is not born again. How can, what agreement is there between your body, if you're a Christian, and the body of your friend? And so there are these fundamental huge differences that there are between the believer and the unbeliever. Now, let's draw out some implications from these. First of all, I do need now to address anybody here who's not yet a Christian. Chances are that there might be somebody here who is not yet saved, or it might be somebody who, who might listen to this sermon online, either now or later. Listen. If you're not saved, you are in really serious trouble. That's what comes out from these verses, isn't it? You're in a state of lawlessness. In rebellion against God's law. You are in darkness. And you love it so. You, you're happy to be in darkness. Because of the corruption of your heart. You are following the devil at this very moment. You're a devil worshipper. You might not like to be told that. But it's the truth. You're a devil worshipper. A devil follower. If you're not yet saved. You have no lot or portion in inheritance, in, in the present experience of believers or in the world to come. You're excluded from all of that if you're not in Christ, if you're not a believer. And at this present time, your body is a, is, is a temple for idols. So what this shows you, if you're not yet a Christian, this shows you, you must get saved. Thanks be to God, God has provided a way by which you can be saved. He sent his son into this world who died in a place of sinners. And no matter how terrible your sin has been, your sin can be forgiven if you will come to Christ. If you'll repent and believe on Jesus Christ, this whole situation will be completely transformed. And where, where you were in lawlessness, where you were counted as lawless, you now can't be righteous in God's sight. Where you were in darkness, you'll be in the light. Where you were following the devil, you'll now be following Christ. Where you were on your, where you were <coughs> on your way to hell, you'll now be heading for heaven and glory. Where your body was a temple of idols, it will become a temple of the Holy Spirit. But you must come to Christ and you must come urgently while you can. 
before it's too late. So I urge you to do that. Even today, even before you leave this room, pray to the Lord and say, God, have mercy on me. Please save me. Please don't let me be in that state of being an unbeliever. But then also, for those of us who are believers, let us realize just how privileged we are. Righteous in God's sight. In the light. United with Christ. Given a wonderful portion, a wonderful inheritance. Having God living in us by the Holy Spirit. So give thanks to God and rejoice in what he has done for you. Well, let's, let's uh, try to apply this, what we've seen um, in, these, in these verses uh, to us. And let me just mention a, a few areas which, which I've touched on briefly already. Let me just mention, first of all, this whole area of, of joining together with those who are not Christians in some sort of, quotes, ministry, some sort of Christian work or something like this. We, in our current state, we are under very considerable pressure. And this has been the case really since the 1960s, I suppose, but it's not going away and probably is going to increase as time goes on to, to say that all versions of Christianity are all the same. And to, to, to join in some sort of mega, quotes, Christian church. And the pressure we're likely to find more and more is that we've got to say, well, Catholics are Christians, liberals who deny the divinity of Christ are Christians, those who say that homosexuality is okay, they're Christians, uh, and, 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 and to just say, well, we're all Christians together. And those who say no, they're not Christians, will be treated like they're extremists, fundamentalists. Why is our society so keen on this? Well, because our society, of course, is really worried about division. It's really worried about civil war and, and, and fractions, factions and so on. So there's this great push in our society to try to say, well, we're all one together. And, of course, it probably won't stop with Christianity. Already there are moves to try and say, well, let's say all religions are the same. They're all one big happy religion. But we who are Christians, we who are Bible-believing Christians, we have to say we cannot partner with those who are not true believers. We must make that distinction. Uh, Paul says in, in Galatians chapter 1, uh, he says in Galatians 1 verse 8, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Very strong, isn't it? Preach a different gospel, you're accursed. You don't belong to Christ at all. Totally different. You know, you might go, you might use the name Christian to apply to you, but you're not a Christian. You're not, you're not a true believer at all. In in Second John, Second Letter of John, uh, 
John writes in uh, verses 7 to 10, Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you you may not lose what you've worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. And whoever whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Very strong, isn't it? So we can't, we can't, much as we might might come under pressure, we cannot, in good conscience, partner with those who claim to be Christians but are not real Christians at all. And this might involve us being treated as outcasts, as members of a sect, as extremists. We know we're not extremists. We know that we love people. We know we're not violent or anything else like that. But we might be treated like that as the enemy of society. Well, we just have to be prepared to, to take what comes. Hebrews 13, verse 12. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, So Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Are you prepared, am I prepared, to bear the disgrace of being a Bible-believing Christian who will not link up with others who call themselves Christians but are not Christians at all? Let's think about the area of friendship. Of course, we all need friends to help us and to support us. We need someone, each one of us needs someone with whom we can share our most intimate thoughts. That's good and that's right. The the lesson we can draw from this passage is don't look for a non-believer to be your best friend or your close support. Of course you're going to witness to unbelievers Of course you're going to want to try to befriend unbelievers in order to try to win them for Christ, of course. But don't look to form a partnership with an unbeliever in the sense that this this unbeliever is going to be the one who is going to be your mainstay in life, your help, your, your rock, if you like. Because if you do that, you're going to be trying to join with somebody who is on a completely different wavelength from you. And the great danger is that you'll be influenced by that partnership into wrong thinking and wrong actions. You come to your non-Christian friend with your problem, with your woe, or oh, this happened, this happened, and then he or she will give you completely the wrong advice because that person doesn't know the Lord. So what's the answer? Be totally, totally alone? No. The answer is, Get involved in a Bible-believing church and find within that church those whom you can trust, 
those who will be your friends and learn to share your life with the members of that church so that the members of that church become your family. They become your support. They become the ones who really help you with the issues that you're facing. Take another area, business partnership. Uh, You might have a friend who might say, oh, I've got this fantastic idea. We could set up this business and we could make a lot of money. We go to the bank, this is their business plan. We go to the bank, we get this loan and we set up this business. Will you come into business with me? Will you be a partner with me in this this enterprise that we're going to do? Be careful. If this person isn't a Christian, he or she might come at it from a completely different angle from you. Might be prepared to borrow more money than you want to borrow. Might be prepared to cut corners, be dishonest, act in a way which is, which is not right. Treat, treat employees wrongly. Be very careful about entering into a business partnership. Uh, with a non-Christian. Now, the place, you know, some of you are medics, I know, some of you think about becoming GPs or RGPs. Uh, I know a lot of Christians quite wisely will say they won't, they'll work for a GP practice, but they won't become a partner in a GP practice unless the other partners are true Christians. I think it's very sensible. Um, same applies with, with being a, a lawyer or any other, you know, one thing to work for a, for a, for a non-Christian company, fine. But you want to be set up business with, in, in, in a practice, a lawyer's practice. Well, you might be wise to look for an, a good, solid Christian to do that. If you could think you're doing that, or do it on your own. Let's think about marriage. Uh, some will object to this passage being used to talk about marriage because they say, well, it's not just talking about, it's not talking about marriage, it's talking about, about, Paul, about the believers and their attitude towards Paul and, and, and the super apostles. Well, I've, I've touched on that and I've dealt with that, but I think it is, it's clear that there's a, a wider application than just relationships within the church and relationships with false teachers. And surely... It must apply to marriage. It doesn't only apply to marriage, but surely it must apply to marriage and indeed to relationships generally, male-female relationships generally. Because surely marriage is the greatest partnership on earth in in, in human terms. Uh, There is no closer partnership, no closer friendship than there should be uh, within a marriage. I know, of course, sometimes some marriages are not like that. Some marriages are very superficial. But, but certainly as God intended it, marriage was for a man to enter into teamwork with his wife and for the two together work as a team, supporting and helping each other. And it must be said that there's huge pressure upon young people to, uh, to, to marry or get into relationships with those who are unbelievers. Uh, perhaps for women in particular this can be the case as they grow older and they come close to um, the time when they'll be long, no longer able to have children. The pressure to, 
to, to, to get married uh, and to take anybody, as it were, uh, who can fulfill, who can, who can, um, who can, who would be willing to marry them, becomes very intense for some. And uh, we do need to hear what, what the apostle is saying here. Now, we read earlier in, 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 uh, in Exodus how God said to the people in Exodus chapter 34 that they should not enter into a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Now, again, very specific situation there. We are not entering the promised land in that sense, but surely there is a principle there. God said to them they should not marry the, 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 the daughters that the sons should not marry the daughters of the Canaanites that they were going into whose land they were going to go. Now, it's nothing to do with racism. Uh, it's because, he says there, if they do, then they're going to land up uh, worshipping the idols of those Canaanites. And you find the same thing in Deuteronomy 7 as well, the same thing God God says to his people that in verses two to five that they are not to, they are not to uh, marry, intermarry with the, with the Canaanites around them. And you've got and you've got instances where this was not obeyed. The most famous, of course, was was Solomon, who married many, uh, many wives who were not Israelites, who followed false gods, and his heart was turned away from the Lord to idolatry through these marriages to women who worshipped idols. And so there's a, a, a real danger here. If you are a Christian man or a Christian young woman, that, that you might be enticed into a, 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 a wrong partnership with somebody who's not a true Christian. Now, of course, you've got to be careful as well because this person might, you know, they, they might come to you and say, oh, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, you know, and they might sort of say, oh, I believe in Jesus. And you say, oh, oh that's good. And you, and, and, before, and you think, oh, yeah. Or they might start to, come, start to come to church and show interest and think, oh. And, and of course, if, you like, if you're attracted to that person, oh, yeah, yeah, he's a Christian, she's a Christian. And, and, and we can so easily get, get uh, we can deceive ourselves, can't we? Uh, because we're so, because uh, uh, we can, we're so keen to, and attracted to that person. Now, people come up with all sorts of reasons why they can ignore what the Apostle says here in, in, as regards marriage. Since somebody might say, oh, this man is such a nice man, such a good man, better than many Christians that I know. Well, he might be a very nice man at one level, but don't forget what we've just seen here. There are, if, 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 if he's not born again, he might seem quite nice, but... Essentially, he's lawless. Essentially, he's following the devil. Essentially, he uh, is in darkness. Essentially, he is excluded from the kingdom of heaven. 
Essentially, he's a temple of idols. Don't forget what the apostle says here. Don't be taken in by appearances. Somebody else might say, oh, well, uh, I'm not too bothered about having too intimate a relationship with my husband. I just need somebody to be my husband so I can have a few kids and have somebody to provide for, for me. Well, and, you know, I'll, 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 I'll make do with, it, with a sort of minimal functional marriage. Well, I'd say in answer to that, first of all, you're going for a very, very, very sub-optimal you know, position because the marriage is meant to be so much more than that. But also I'd say to you this, even a, quotes minimal marriage, if it's with somebody who doesn't belong to Christ, is liable to be a very unhappy marriage and a very lonely marriage. I've spoken with people who, who married to non-Christians, sometimes not for their fault because they you know, converted after they, were, they, after they were married. And they're so lonely really lonely they're living with a stranger do you really want to live with a complete stranger who just doesn't understand you and then somebody else might say well uh, yes he's not a Christian now but I'm sure that I, you know with God with prayer and me witnessing to him I'm sure he'll be converted before long well, of course, there's always the exception that proves the rule, isn't there? There's always that occasional person who, who, um, who, who does get converted in the goodness of God. And thank God for that. But in the vast majority of cases, what tends to happen is not that the unbelieving partner gets converted. What tends to happen is that the believing partner gets dragged down. And you see it again and again, that the believing partner starts to fall away from church, starts to lose interest in Christ, and, 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 and gets very, very weak in his or her Christian life. Somebody else might say, ah, but doesn't Paul say it's better to marry than to burn? So, okay, it's not ideal, but... If I'm madly in love with somebody, better to marry that person than to, than, than to burn. Well, that, that comes from 1 Corinthians 7, that expression, better to marry than to burn. But if you actually, if you actually take the trouble to read 1 Corinthians 7 carefully, um, that verse is in verse 9 of, 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 of 1 Corinthians 7. If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than, than to burn with passion. But if you go over to the end of 1 Corinthians 7, the apostle says, verse 39, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry whom she wishes only in the Lord. So, to say, ah, oh, well, Better to, better to marry than to burn with passion. If you say that and you don't go to the end of the chapter, you're missing something very important. The apostle is very clear that, that a believer should marry in the Lord. In other words, another true believer. 
somebody else might say, well, I can't face the prospect of the rest of my life as a single person. I have to marry. Well, for that, I would say again, look at, read 1 Corinthians 7 again and, and, and look at what the Apostle says there in verses 30, um, 32 to 35 about the disadvantages of being married. You know, marriage is a blessing, but it has its, its, its shortcomings as well and its problems. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. An unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But a married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. There are distinct advantages in being single. I'm, I'm thankful to be married, and please don't misunderstand me. But, but if I were to be married, unmarried, I hope I would remember this, that actually there are advantages in being unmarried. And remember that all of us spend the first 20 30 years of our lives as single people, maybe more. Many of us will spend the last 10, 20 years of our lives as single people. Marriage isn't everything. It's, it's, it's a blessing, yes, but it's not everything. And uh, if you raise marriage to be something oh, I've got to be married oh, I've got to be in a relationship well that really has then become an idol for you and uh, God tells us we should not worship idols we should worship him and him alone now of course um, there are some there may there there are some of us, of course, who are married to unbelievers, not because of any fault of theirs, or, but because um, they got converted after their spouse. And, of course, if you're in that situation, then you need to make the best of it you can. And the te- there is teaching about that also in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And if your spouse is willing to live with you, then you should continue in that relationship. But... Let's hear what the Apostle is saying here. Don't willingly enter into a partnership with someone who is not a believer, whether whatever partnership it might be, business relationship, spiritual, church, ministry relationship, or marriage. Be very careful that we, we don't get involved in something which is not right. Well, I hope that's helpful for us and I just want to finish by just saying again to anybody who's not yet a Christian, don't forget what the Apostle has said here in this passage about the, the dreadful state that you are in if you're, not, if you're not yet saved and come to Christ for salvation. Well, perhaps we could sing um, a hymn which is really a prayer. Number 811. Oh, for a closer walk with God, a calm.